0: This Sunday, I am preaching right at the beginning, because as soon as I'm done preaching, I'm leaving uh, to head over to North Eugene High School for the uh, Project Hope. So we're going to get rolling here, uh, and here's what we're preaching about today. Quit going to church. Quit going to church, all right? What is he talking about? Acts chapter two, uh, beginning in verse 42. If you've got your Bible, you wanna turn there. Acts chapter two will be there in just a few moments. Uh, Dwight Moody is a famous uh, evangelist of the 19th, earliest, 20th century. And the stories told of, uh, of Dr. Moody was visiting a rather prominent businessman when the idea of church membership, church involvement, being a part of the church came up. And the guy said something along the lines of, you know, I think, uh, I think that I can be just as committed to God outside the church as I can in. That whole church thing is not a big deal to me. And Dr. Moody, a pretty smart guy, he didn't say anything. They were sitting in the living room. It was a cold night in Chicago. The fire was roaring. So he went over there and picked up the tongs and he took out one ember out of the fire and he said it there on the hearth in front of the fireplace. Didn't say anything. Sat back down, and they were just quiet as that ember slowly faded away from hot red to cool, and it just began to cool off. And finally, that businessman said, oh, I get it. I see what you're talking about. You see, sometimes being a part of the church is important. Not even sometimes, but all the time. You know, sometimes I wonder about some folks that have left the church. They've wandered away for sometimes what they think is a good reason, only to find that what they're looking for really is right back where they left. So many people who claim to follow Christ in our culture today live lives separately from the church. Some people avoid or leave the church due to, you know, all kinds of things. Some people say, well, the church is full of hypocrisy. And you know what? They're right. The church is full of hypocrisy, and it's true. The church has always had its share of all kinds of stuff. Racism, immorality, greed, every other kind of sin. And why not? Because after all, it is a gathering of people. I like to say that we are a hospital, not a hall of fame. And here we are, helping one another heal on our journey towards Jesus. And yeah, sometimes there's going to be hypocrisy. Some people have left the church because they've been burned, they've been hurt, they've been betrayed by the church or another person or sometimes even by a church leader. For others, it's not about hypocrisy at all, but it's about, you know, boredom. Who wants to come and sit for 30 minutes and listen to a guy drone on about some old book written thousands of years ago? And so they become wearied by the unwavering routine, week after week, the same thing, the same crowds, the same people, the same songs, the same announcements, and the same faces. And so the question is, friends, the question is, how could something that strikes so many people as riddled with hypocrisy and others as boring be absolutely essential for our spiritual survival? Because you understand that's what Scripture teaches us. The church is absolutely essential for our spiritual survival. And I think part of the problem is that sometimes we misunderstand the nature of the church, and our language is a dead giveaway. When we talk about going to church, we kind of talk about it the same way that we talk about going to Safeway, going to the mall, I'm going out, I'm going to church. We think of the church as a place that we go and visit and then leave rather than a reality that we're called to live every single day. And so friends, I want to say to you, quit going to church. Just stop it. Quit going to church. You know, the early Christians in the first century, soon after uh, Jesus' resurrection, the church began to meet regularly, and they never talked about going to church. You know what they talked about? They talked about being the church, living as the church. And nowhere is this more uh, apparent than in our text today in Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. In verse 41, right after Peter preaches the first gospel sermon— There's this great little uh, section there where it talks about 3,000 souls were saved that day. Imagine that, 3,000 baptisms in one afternoon. That's an amazing harvest of souls, isn't it? But we need to realize that conversion is just the beginning. Just the beginning. It's not the end of the story, only the beginning. In the very next verse, in verse 42, uh, Luke writes, they were continually, all these new people, 3,000 plus people. All of a sudden, the church went from 12 to about 70 to thousands of people in one day. And it says they were continually devoting themselves, devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. That is those who had just experienced salvation, they didn't simply just go to church. They lived in a continual devotion to certain things. What are you devoted to? What are you devoted to? Are you devoted to your family, to your kids, to your grandkids? Think about all the warm, fuzzy feelings when you think about devotion. What are you devoted to? College football started yesterday. Are you devoted to your favorite team, favorite sports? What are you devoted to? Are you devoted to your job, to your career, to climbing the ladder? What are you devoted to? Devoted to your, your house, home improvement projects at an all-time high through COVID. People are putting more and more time into their house, fixing it up. Some people are just devoted to home improvement. What are you devoted to? These early Christians were devoted to the church. They lived in continual devotion a state of devotion instead of it being a weekly snack to boost their spiritual energy fellowship with believers was more like a a intravenous flow of spiritual life by getting saved they were automatically placed into the body of christ now here we are 20 centuries later And what's going on? We see an alarming rise in the number of Christ followers who assume that it's just fine to be spectators but not participants in the work and in the community and in the life of the church. And COVID has certainly done us no favors in this area. Really, think about this, an inactive church member That that statement doesn't even make sense, an inactive church member. Think about your car. Your car has four tires, doesn't it? And if one of them goes flat, you shouldn't be driving around, right? You should park that baby until you get fixed. An inactive church member is like a flat tire. They become passive, sometimes even apathetic, flat to the life of Christ. Or here's something even worse. In our following of Jesus, we become reduced to mere consumers, critics. I frequently meet people that say, oh, I'm kind of shopping for a church. I'm shopping around for a church, kind of like they're shopping around for a new TV, trying to find the best sale, the best deal. We're gonna talk a little bit about this in our text. Luke mentions four characteristics of the church in verse 42, and then he elaborates on, the rest of, uh, on those characteristics in the rest of the verses. And these characteristics illustrate for us the church is not something that we do or visit, but rather something that we live. And so I want us to read together this text, and then we're gonna explore these, these four characteristics. The words are gonna be on the screen. So let's read this passage together, Acts 2 And day by day, attending the temple together, and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. Amen. The word of God. And so... The first characteristic that I want us to notice is that the early church was a learning church. A learning church. Luke says that they were devoted to the apostles' teaching. We might even say that the Holy Spirit kind of opened a school in Jerusalem that day. The teachers were the apostles. Those guys who were the eyewitnesses to the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And then the students were those 3,000 plus We could call them kindergartners, couldn't we? Who had just been enrolled in school. They're just starting. And they are devoted to their teachers and to the teaching that they're bringing. I suppose it might have been tempting for these early believers to kind of look back to Pentecost and all the events that had happened and kind of recall, if you're familiar with that passage, where the Holy Spirit has been working in some really dramatic ways and they might even think, you know what? We don't need to learn anymore. All we need is more of this spirit. That's pretty awesome, this Holy Spirit stuff. Why do we need those apostles when we have the spirit to teach us? But interestingly, when, when Luke says that the Holy Spirit came down to to dwell in those 3,000 new believers as they were baptized into Christ, he doesn't say anything about the supernatural wind or the fire or the tongues that were so amazing. Instead, what does he say? They became learners. They sat at the apostles' feet. They were hungry for instruction. You see, when the Spirit of God truly invades our lives, that's what he does. He makes us hungry for God's truth. And so let me ask you this question for you just to reflect on for just a moment. What are you hungry for? What are you hungry? What, what, what's, what's driving your hunger? Are you sitting here this morning thinking, man, I forgot to eat breakfast? I can't wait till the end so I can get to the to the restaurant before the Baptists get out. I'm hungry. What are you hungry for? Look here in verse 43. I want you to see that the teaching authority of the apostles, it was authenticated by the miracles, right? The people felt a sense of awe. They were in awe of those miracles that the apostles performed. But what does that do? It causes them to be then even more devoted to the apostles' teaching. Now, I suppose it'd be pretty cool if you saw me today and I called a, a blind person up out of the audience here and I, I, I healed them and maybe you'd think, wow, maybe I should listen to this guy a little bit. In, in this time, in the first century, the miracles were especially pre- prevalent during those early years of the church because God designed them to authenticate the teaching of the apostles. Now today, do you realize we have the apostles' teaching? We don't have those 12 guys sitting up here in their robes and sandals, but we do have their words. We have their teachings. God's word carefully protected throughout generation to generation to generation so that we have the apostles' teaching. And so when we study the scriptures, whether it's here in the church building or in our homes We're doing so with an eye towards being devoted, obeying what God has called us to. We're devoting ourselves to the apostles' teaching. The early church was a learning church. The next thing I want you to see about the early church is that not only was it a learning church, it was a loving church. Luke says in verse 42 that the believers were devoted to fellowship. Now, what in the world is that, fellowship? That's a church word, right? Right? Nobody talks about fellowship anywhere besides the church. And even in the church, we misuse it and overuse it way too much. Uh, And so we hardly remember what it means. We talk about fellowship, and we think it's, oh, coffee and cookies after church today. Oh, fellowship. By the way, there's no coffee and cookie today. Sorry. (laughs) I want to get your hopes up. The, the, The word fellowship, it comes from the original language. The word is koinonia. And it means to hold something in common or to share together in something significant. All right? Coffee and cookies are nice, but they're not significant. What holds us together, what holds us in fellowship, are the things that we share in. And as believers, there's a number of things we share in. The Apostle John put it this way in his letter in 1 John Uh, chapter 1 when he said, our fellowship, he's talking about us Christians, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And so the, the very most precious thing that binds us together in fellowship is our connection with the Father and with his Son and with his Spirit. And when we share together in him, friends, then all our differences should melt away. Do you realize that the church is really the first institution in history to bring together radically different groups of people? Jews and Gentiles who had nothing to do with one another. Men and women. When women were nothing in culture, the church embraced them and brought them in as important integral parts of the body. Slaves in a time when slavery was rampant as well as free people, and those slaves and those free people, they came and they worshiped together. Sometimes the slaves became the church leaders over sometimes their own slave owners, imagine that. All of that, radically different background, people coming together because they were bound together in fellowship. The church is important, and in the same way today, friends, Today's church ought to include rich and poor people, professionals and blue-collar people, healthy people, unhealthy people, young people, old people, people of different ethnic and racial backgrounds. Could I even be so bold as to say maybe some Republicans and Democrats together? (laughs) And everyone else. Because what binds us together are not our political philosophies, They're not our preferences in music style or anything else. What binds us together is the spirit of God because we belong to him. Listen to this. I found this great quote from a guy by the name of Daryl Gruder. And I'm going to read it for you. He says, the role of the church is to cultivate a people who can risk being peaceful in a violent world. People who will risk being kind in a competitive society. People who will risk being faithful in an age of cynicism. Risk being gentle in a culture that admires toughness. People who will risk love when it may not be returned. Because we have the confidence that in Christ we have been reborn to a new reality a new fellowship. That's powerful. That's what we're called to. Friends, we share in something. But here's something else I want you to realize. We also share out something. In verses 44 and 45, Luke describes how some of the believers even sold their property and their possessions and they used those proceeds to help the people in need. There were tons of poor people in the early church. People from all over the world that came there and then got kind of stuck there because they wanted to stay in the church. But they didn't have jobs. They didn't have money. And so they were taking care of one another. You see, when the spirit of God enters a person's life, this sort of sacrificial giving is often the result. Love leads to generosity. As believers, we come to realize that money and possessions, they don't define us. And so we should be pushed to respond with generation. And one of those ways we can do that is just by meeting the needs in our community. You know, this weekend is a great example of that. Yesterday, I saw some of you just down the street at our neighborhood elementary school, Holt Elementary, out there in the parking lot pulling weeds. Nasty weeds, by the way. Tough weeds out there. We hadn't been over there for almost three years, because again, of COVID. And so there we were trying to pull up those weeds. Why were we doing that? To serve our community. This afternoon, some of you will be serving over at North Eugene High School. When we head over there and we hand out brand new pairs of shoes and backpacks and school supplies to a bunch, hundreds of kids that are in need. Many of you donated funds to buy those backpacks, you see, through the church, through our pursuit of serving our community together, through your generosity of time and sweat and finances, hundreds of families will be impacted. Many of you gave out of your surplus time and treasures to bless others, not just in this weekend, but in many different ways. And I want to say thank you. I so appreciate that. I think that one of the, the, the hallmarks of Gardenway Church is our generosity. You know, every local church is a little bit different. We all have different strengths, different weaknesses. One of our strengths is being generous. Whenever a need is presented, it is met over and above us. So I want to say thank you for that. But now, I want to say also it's time for the next step. Think about this. What if we gave beyond our surplus? Beyond our extra stuff or our spare time or the extra money that we have? I don't know. I don't know exactly what the next project might be. I don't know who God is going to rise up with some great idea. But the question is, will we be willing to truly share life together, koinonia, as we accomplish the task. Will our love flow through our hands as we serve in the name of Jesus? You see, God calls the church to be an organic body that interacts through relationships. The church is not a building. It's not a hierarchy. It's not an institution, but it is a network of people, Christ followers, loving one another, living life together, serving Jesus, and loving our community in generous ways. Well, there's a a third thing that we see in the early church, and that is the early church was a worshiping church. A worshiping church. Luke tells us in verse 42 that they were devoted to the breaking of bread And prayer the breaking of bread refers to what we call the communion or the Lord's Supper which we're going to celebrate together in just a little while the early church celebrated the communion in the context of a larger meal called the love feast and then when Luke mentions prayer literally he says the prayers he's not just talking about your private prayer life all right we think about prayer as something between me and God and that that's a great thing When he says the prayers, they were devoted to the prayers. He's talking about corporate prayer. The prayers of God's people together. Communion and prayer defined their worship. The early church, do you know this, still met in the temple and in the courtyards? In Acts chapter 3, there's a little story about about Peter and John uh, and it says that they, they were getting up and they were going through the temple, going into the temple at the ninth hour, the hour of prayer. In other words, they, they continued to attend the formal worship that was taking place in the Jewish temple. That consisted of all kinds of sacrifices and prayers and blessings that were cultural, part of their cultural heritage as Jews. Jews. But they also participated in more informal worship meetings that we see from Scripture often took place in homes or in alcoves around in the temple courtyards. Look at verse 46. It says, day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. So that's a little glimpse of the early church. They were going to the temple together. I don't know if all 3,000, 5,000 of them said, oh, let's all show up at this time and sit in the same section. Probably not. But they were all going to the temple together. And then they were breaking bread in their homes, in a large gathering and in small groups. They didn't go to church. They lived it. They did these things, you see in the text, day by day. It was part of their everyday lives. You know, there's something unique, something special, something really, I would say, wonderful about meeting in a home with other believers and having a meal together. That's a great experience. Laughing, praying, sometimes crying, talking, sharing. And when you do that, when you break bread with people and you sit down and eat together, you begin to see people in a new light because that level of intimacy creates some vulnerability. You know, I think one of the great losses as a church family that we've had in the last couple of years in this area has been a decline, a decline in our life groups and in our our triad discipleship groups that meet in homes or meet in small groups. And it's my prayer that very soon we will begin to, instead of stop meeting in small groups, meet in small groups more. And so if you have an interest in doing that and being a part of a a home group of 10 to 12 people or in a a triad of of three people who meet together to share in, in challenge and in spiritual growth, I want want you to use that connection card I talked about earlier. Just write on that. Let us know. I'd like to be in a group. I'd like to be in a triad. And we'll help you. We'll help you get connected with some other believers. Because what I'm talking about here is not, not optional, folks. This is important stuff. It's vital for your spiritual growth. You see, if this kind of fellowship is not a part of your church experience, if you're just coming here from 10 until 11 on Sunday morning, you are missing out. You are missing an integral part of growing as a disciple, a learning, doing follower of Jesus. And so if you're not a part of a, an adult Bible fellowship, a small group that meets on Sunday morning, or a life group that meets during the midweek, or a, a triad group, think about, think about investing some of that time and energy into one of those groups a community of people will befriend and they will love you. And you will have a group of friends that will challenge you to grow personally and as a community. The early church was a learning church, it was a loving church, it was a worshiping church. And then finally, number four, <clears throat> the fourth characteristic of the early church shows up in verse 47. They were a growing church. They were praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. It's just a regular ongoing process. You ever think about this? Why does a church grow? Well, Luke gives us a part of the answer. A church grows by having favor with all the people. Think about that for a moment. They had favor with all, who, what people? They were still rubbing shoulders with people in their community. They didn't sever all their relationships with their non believing neighbors and family. They didn't see unbelievers as the enemy to be opposed or to be argued with. Instead, they tried to meet the community. The needs outside of the church fellowship as well as within it. And by doing so, they walked in favor with the community. But I want you to see there's something else at work here. Luke is very careful to acknowledge the Lord Lord was adding to their number day by day. Think about that for a moment. The Lord was adding. Ultimately, do you realize this? It's the Lord's job to save people. It's not my job. Not, Not my job as the preacher It's not your job to save your unsaved family and friends. You see, God is at work among us. And he's in the business of salvation, of saving people. Our role is just to find favor with those people and help them along that journey. Maybe you could do something like invite them. On September 11th, when we have that barbecue, hey, come to my church, have a meal with me. Maybe you can take them out to coffee. Just see how they're doing. Don't worry about sharing a bunch of Bible verses. Just check in, see how their life's going. Gain some favor, so that when the opportunity comes, you can speak about spiritual things. I I I read this. I learned this recently about some ants, ants, particularly in South and Central America, in, in the rainforests, some of the ants will lie down in the potholes and, and, and lay there so that the rest of the ants can march along on their backs to get over the pothole to get to where they're going, to get to the food. And so the, pick, the, the bodies from, from these ants, they kind of make this makeshift bridge that allows the other ants, sometimes... 200,000 plus ants march along. Imagine you're the guy underneath just laying there. (laughs) These guys are all boom, 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 marching across. And they do that. They lay there to make so that their friends, the rest of the ants, can make better time in getting to the source of nourishment. Some university in in England figured this all out. And the researchers took a, a wooden plank and they drilled different size holes in it kind of simulated a narrow trail. And, and they noticed that the ants would find all the holes. And if it was a tiny hole, it might just be one or two ants. If it's a larger hole, it might be a, a bunch of ants. But they'd lay down inside. And they'd watch the other ants march across their backs to get to the food they laid out there. And then when the raiding party was accomplished, done with its mission, they went back, marched over those guys again. And then the faithful few... When everybody had walked all over them, climbed out of their holes, and followed the raiders home, and probably had something to eat afterwards, don't you think? You know, we don't like to get walked on, do we? Don't let anybody walk all over you. Be strong. Stand up for yourself. Friends, I want you to understand this. In some sense, it is our job to fill the holes, to lay down in those spots to build a bridge so people can get to what's important, the bread of life, Jesus himself. It's our job to lay down and be ready to serve. It's our job to lay down so that we can establish a good reputation for God's church. And that is accomplished by living lives that honor God and bring glory to his church. And While we are busy as individuals, as small groups, and corporately as the local church, impacting our community, while we're doing that, God is busy in his role, working in people's hearts, the very people that we might be reaching out to. Isn't that an amazing plan? That's a great plan. It's not my plan. It's God's plan. And guess what? It's his only plan. He works through us to change lives so that he can bring about salvation. God doesn't have any other plan but us. You know, this might be just a good moment to to say, let's just think about our church mission statement. It's hanging up there on the wall, all right? What is it? To know him. To know him. That's talking about learning, isn't it? To know Jesus. What's the next one? To love him. We've been talking about that. Loving him means loving others. And then what are we doing? We're sharing him. We're sharing him. How are we sharing him? Sometimes by sharing scriptural truth and sometimes by getting down on your hands and knees and helping a little kid put on their new pair of shoes in the gym at North Eugene High School. Sometimes by digging in the dirt old, over at Holt Elementary pulling up those weeds. We're representing, sharing Jesus. Are you familiar with the duck-billed platypus? Pretty unique creature in the animal kingdom. It breaks many of the rules of biology. Here, consider this about the platypus. The platypus has a flat, rubbery bill, no teeth, and webbed feet, just like a duck. Yet, it has a, a furry body and a beaver-like tail, and it nurses its young like a mammal. But then, wait for a minute, listen to this. It walks with kind of a lizard gait, and it lays leathery eggs like a reptile. And the male can use venomous hind legs to strike its enemies like a snake. not that weird? That's a weird animal, This strange animal stymied scientists for years. In in fact, the first platypuses uh, that were discovered, I mean, they'd been around for a long time, but they were discovered in the the early 1800s. And they shipped them back to to England so they could study them. And the people said, ah, these are frauds. These are fakes. You took different animals and sewed them together to make these things. People, they weren't ready to buy into this idea of this bizarre concoction of a duck's bill and webbed feet and beaver's body. Well, think about this, friends. In designing the platypus, I wonder if God just had some fun (laughs) stretching the limits of, of natural law by combining so many incompatible features into one humble animal It kind of gives me hope that we humans, too, can maybe break some of the rules that govern the organisms in which we are involved. And the most important organism that we're involved in as Christ followers is the local church. In the New Testament, the the, the favorite metaphor for the church is the body of Christ. That that describes an organism, doesn't it? Other organism words are like the flock, uh, the family of God. So it's very organic. But churches also function as an organization. They have to have some sort of formal governing structure which carries out you know, decision-making and supervision of some sort. E- even churches with a, a single pastor staff, somebody still has to supervise the volunteers. And so like it or not, every church organism becomes a Christian organization. And those two words kind of mashed together set up some immediate tension. And so the church is kind of like the platypus. It's a whole, but it's made up of some contradictory parts that in some ways just don't make sense. Think about organizations for a moment, like what's an organization? The army, the government, business, They all function with rules, right? Guidelines, very organized. But what about organisms? Organisms, living things, families, close-knit groups, affinity groups, those organic things. They're more mushy, aren't they? All right? More emotional, those kinds of things. And so the church, here we are in the church, and we fall somewhere between these two. And you know what happens? Criticism comes from all sides because some of us are more organization people, right? And we get fed up with the church. Oh, it's not managed well. There's sloppy personnel procedures, general inefficiency. Ah. But then some of us are, we lean more organism, organic, right? And we, we, then we complain when the church begins to function. Oh, it's just, they're running it like a business. It's like an institution over there. It's lost its family feel. Well, maybe the tension between organism and organization, maybe it's unavoidable, but think about this. Maybe it's also healthy. Maybe it's good for us. Maybe we should feel, we should feel uncomfortable when the church tilts a little too far one way or the other. Because a healthy church combines forces that are normally found in opposition. And so, friends, my prayer for our church, for Garden Way Church, is that we would strive to be efficient and yet compassionate. That we would be unified and yet very diverse. That we would be structured and yet flexible. May we live like a platypus in a world full of reptiles and mammals and fowl. May we be this unique and different place, people, group. People that kind of scratch their head and think, what what is that? But then when they find out, they think, that's pretty cool. That's pretty awesome. May we be devoted to these characteristics so that we can effectively live as Jesus intends us to will you pray with me father we are so grateful for your love for your care and for your plan father you have invited us into your church lord you've called us out of the world of darkness and you've called us into your kingdom of light and life and goodness and glory and father we are recipients of your grace and the hope that comes from following Jesus. Lord, as we walk this path that you've set out for us, may we pursue it with love. May we be learners. May we be passionate about worshiping you. And Father, may we give all that we have to serve you to the best of our ability. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. 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 I want to remind you as we close up uh, this teaching portion that our our elders are going to be under the prayer corner sign at the end of the service today. Uh, And and they would just be privileged to share and pray with you and for you if you have a burden today. I hope you won't leave this place without somebody praying for you. And then uh, I also want to encourage you to to be just really proactive over the next couple of weeks and thinking about who you can invite, who you can bring with you as we kick off this next season of our life together. At this time, one of our elders, Dick Beswick, is gonna come and lead us into a time of communion. May God bless us today. I kept uh, waiting for uh, Rob to use that famous uh, quote about platypuses, that they are the only only animal that looks like they were designed by a committee. <laughs> uh, that, was, that was great. Um, I sometimes wonder if uh, superlatives, or maybe a better word would be universals, words like uh, forever and always, are used by speakers and writers uh, merely to express how they're feeling about something. If they're feeling strongly about something. Um, or, Or if the truth of what they are saying when they say words like forever and